Well, I had, I had Kelly read those particular scriptures because they're sort of the bookends in the middle of the text we're going to look at tonight. And I'm not doing four chapters tonight because I'm just trying to get through a lot of material. These chapters actually hang together. And we're used in, these, in this section to focusing on the story of David and Goliath. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time. What I want to do is sort of tell the overarching story of this section of Scripture and then make some applications for us at the very end. So these chapters tell the story of David's selection and anointing as the king of Israel and the resulting jealousy that comes upon Saul. And honestly, the madness that will descend upon Saul as he grows more and more jealous that God is with David. It also tells about how the love for David brings about a rift in Saul's own house when when Saul's son, Jonathan, loves David and when Saul's daughter, Michael, loves David. It's going to bring bring out this rift in his own house. And one of the big themes of all of Samuel is that David is the rightful king. He is the one that God has anointed and chosen to be the king of his people, but he has to go into exile. He doesn't get to be anointed and then immediately reign. He is going to suffer before entering into his glory. And hopefully that sounds familiar. David is going to have to learn in his exile how to be shrewd as a serpent and innocent as a dove. How to be God's anointed indeed, trusting God, walking with God, doing what God wants him to do without at the same time attacking God's anointed who is on the throne. So in this first episode, in chapter 16, David is anointed among his brothers. Now remember, in the prior chapters, uh, um, Ben talked about it last week, God has rejected Saul for three sins. He's rejected Saul for three things that he did. First, he presumed to offer up worship instead of waiting for Samuel to come and offer worship. Kings in Israel weren't given the right to lead in worship and offer sacrifices. He makes a rash oath. On a day when Jonathan has accomplished great things for the people of God. And this rash oath, through this rash oath, he almost has his own son killed. That's a second error that he makes. And then finally, he sent to wipe out Amalek, who have um, plagued Israel from their days of leaving Egypt. And he fails to do so, and he claims a religious reason for doing so. But this is disobedience. So his reign is done. In fact, Samuel says, listen, your reign is over. And when and when Saul grabs Samuel's robe, it is torn from him. And he says, that's what's going to happen to your kingdom. So it's important to note that that is the end of Saul's kingdom. Saul, when confronted, did what Adam did. He made excuses. He passed the buck. I think he had a chance to repent. But because he didn't repent, it's the end of his kingdom. Now, it's going to take years For his kingdom to totally come apart. And it's going to fall apart for various reasons. But this is why it fell apart. Not because of the external reasons. Uh, Those are just later causes. But it's because of his own internal disobedience to God. um, The kingdom is over. And so God tells Samuel. And it's almost like um, God's a little bit uh, miffed at Samuel. He says, how long are you going to grieve for Saul? Get up. Let me go to Bethlehem to the house of Jesse. I have found a, a king there that I, want, um, that I want to rule. So we get three sort of scenes 
If you're thinking of a movie, three episodes in a movie that present David to us. And the first one is this anointing among his brothers. And what we learn is that God has almost set up the situation with Saul to say, I choose my leaders by a different criteria than humans choose. So David goes to the house of Jesse, and of course, everyone in Ramah is terrified. That should tell you something. Saul is murderously jealous, right? If he thinks that there's some other king going to be anointed, he's going to kill them. So he gets into his house, and they bring the eldest of his children before him, of Jesse's children before him. And he says, aha, God's anointed because he's tall. Like, he's just like Saul. He's this tall and powerful man. And God says in 1 Samuel 16, 6, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So part of what God is doing is saying, listen, I do not have the same criteria as you. You value what you see. You value criteria that are exterior. But I see something entirely different, and I value something entirely different than you do. And this story is fascinating because it mentions three sons, and then they go through four more sons, and those sons' names aren't mentioned, and they're stumped. And it's almost like a Cinderella moment because they've just not even thought about David. They haven't even considered the eighth son. They've not thought, oh, well, we should bring him. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are your sons, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord says, ar- said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. We don't even get an indication that he gives David any kind of marching orders. He just anoints him. Doesn't say he says anything and he goes home. I don't know what everybody thought. I think Eliab was jealous. I think the oldest and maybe the other brothers were jealous. So God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Not the firstborn, not the secondborn. The eighthborn, the runt, who's doing a menial job of taking care of his sheep. And notice the spirit of God rushed on him, just like it rushed on Saul. But then we get the second scene. We find out that Saul, because the spirit of God has departed from him, is troubled in mind and heart. And the scripture gives us this curious phrase that God sent an evil spirit from the Lord. The ESV says harmful, but other translations say an evil spirit from the Lord. And Saul is deeply troubled. And we almost wonder as the story unfolds, is Saul mentally stable? And I think probably he's not exactly. Saul's troubles are certainly spiritual. They certainly have to do with the spirit of God departing from him and this evil spirit from the Lord. But they're also psychological. And the scripture is not really interested in partitioning off which percent is spiritual and which percent is psychological. They all go together. And the Bible doesn't need to divide them out. It says this in 1614. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul 
and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. And he says, do it. And they say, hey, I know a guy. And they bring David in. And David is now his musical therapist. Whenever he is depressed, whenever he is anxious, whenever this spirit is upon him, David comes in and he plays and he's better. And so David is presented to us first as the anointed of God, then as this sort of healer, this singer who can drive away depression and anxiety and whatever this harmful spirit is that's on Saul. Then we get the famous third scene, which is the the confrontation with Goliath. And let's say a few things about this. First, we often think of the story of David and Goliath as a children's story, but it's not a children's story. Or it's not primarily intended for children. It's intended for all of us. In fact, I would say it's intended for Saul and everybody who might be tempted to think like Saul. And we should also keep in mind that David was probably not a little kid like we often, he's often depicted in Bible stories. He's probably a 20-something when this whole encounter went down. Notice a few things about the story with Goliath. Goliath is presented as a serpent. His armor has, it's, it's, uses the word for scales. So it makes us think of a serpent. And that serpent should make us think once again of Genesis 3.15. The promise that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. We should think, oh, we have a moment like that. But we should also think when we read the account of Goliath that he's an awful lot like the heroes in Homeric mythology, Achilles and Odysseus and others. If you've read the Iliad, there's this long, vivid description of Achilles' armor. And notice this passage um, in 16, excuse me, 17.4 about Goliath and his armor and his accoutrements. This is verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had, a, he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield bearer went before him. So he's described in the classic terms. In fact, he's Saul on steroids. Remember the description of Saul before. Saul was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. Well, here's a guy that's clearly taller than him, and he's got much better armor. And if you're thinking like Saul, or if you're thinking like Israel, oh, wow, the tallest guy is the best. Well, this guy's the best. This guy outdoes Saul by a long shot. And Saul... When David comes to the camp of the Israelites and encounters, uh, when he comes into Saul's court, Saul determines, well, okay, you know, I guess I'll let you, but here, you should try my armor on. He wants to fight fire with fire. All he can see is Goliath's height, and all he can see is his technology. And so he says, well, we need to match his technology with our own technology. Saul, pay attention, will increasingly be associated with this mindset. He thinks only in terms of what he sees in Goliath. Later on, he tries to kill David again and again. What does he try to kill David again and again with? A spear. That spear should make you think of Goliath. It's almost as if Saul himself is going to become a Goliath, trying to kill David because he's jealous of David. Height 
and armor and weapons are all that fill his imagination. That's all that Saul can see. And David, it lives in a world where God fills his imagination. He lives in a world where he knows there is so much more going on than what we see. And God and what God can do in God's honor is what captures his imagination and fills his mind. So David says to the king, he says to Saul, listen, God has helped me again and again. And I want to discuss this for a minute. He says, God has helped me again and again to kill the lion and the bear that came after my father's sheep. Now think about that. He says, they've helped me do that. But it's not like David sort of prayed and God struck down the lion with lightning. Okay? Nor is it that... Um, nor is it that, so in all of these encounters, David prayed, he trusted God, but then he had to act. Does that make sense? God's help for David wasn't necessarily this exterior miraculous thing that other people would have seen. But in David's understanding, in David's way of looking at things, we pray, we ask God for help, we ask God for guidance, and then we go and do our best and use all our effort and God helps us. Does that make sense? I think this is really key because sometimes we think when God helps us, it has to be something spectacular. And David, I think, would, would say when he had these encounters, he sweat, he bled, he got dirty. But nonetheless, God helped him protect his father's sheep and strike down these animals. And so I think there's something in that for us in our lives and what God calls us to do. We ask for guidance. We ask for help. And we try our best, and God works in the midst of that. Does that make sense? Those two things go together. David knows there's far more in heaven and on earth than everything that we can see and that what you can see with Goliath. And so David's philosophy of work and war is this. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all that assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. So David's imagination is filled with what God can do. And he knows that God is going to use this circumstance to make himself known. And of course, we know the story. He smites Goliath in the head and he smites his head off. He is a serpent slayer. He crushes the serpent's head. And as a consequence, there's going to be a sword that comes into Saul's house. When David gets back, when David comes back and he's presented into Saul's court... Jonathan sees him and he sees all this. Now, probably Jonathan was almost a generation older than David. I think we often think of him as a peer, but he's probably about 20 years older than him. All right. He could be his father. And he sees what what David has done. And it says this in chapter 18, one, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor 
and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So Jonathan, who had done great wonders for Israel, who had risked his life to do what his dad probably should have been doing, who was persecuted by his own dad almost, almost killed, sees something in David and he says, that man, God is with that man. That is, he doesn't say it, but I think he recognizes that he, God has rejected his dad and that David is here to replace him. And so David enters into this covenant with Saul and Saul Strips himself of all these things. Why does he strip themselves? He is essentially saying, listen, I know I'm the heir to the throne. But I'm throwing all that at your feet. It belongs to you. Saul tried to put his armor on David. And David said, no, I'm not going to take that. But Jonathan says, here's my armor. Here's my sword. Here's my arrows. You're the king. And I am committing myself to you. Think about what Jonathan gives up. He gives up a kingdom. He gives up a reputation to commit himself to David because he believes that this is the one that God has chosen. And it says he loved him. The people loved him. Later, Michael will love him. So Jonathan is symbolically divesting himself of the right to the throne and handing it over to David. It was a submission to the reign, to the kingdom, the coming kingdom of David. And then, of course, this precipitates the mad jealousy of Saul. All right, as this develops and as the story develops, Saul just descends further and further into unreason, and he's all over the place emotionally. David did nothing but good for Saul. He brought healing to Saul when he was troubled. He fought Saul's battles and the battles of the people of God. But Saul is convinced that he's got to get rid of David. It says this in 18.6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine. The women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Here we see the dark turn in leadership. His job was to be a deliverer of the people of God. His job was to be a servant of the people of God. And now his leadership has become about him. And it's become about his reputation. And he cannot rejoice in the good things that God is doing for the people of God. He can't rejoice because he's worried about losing his place. It's a lot like the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem in Jesus' day. They're worried about losing their place if we don't get rid of this upstart Jesus. And so Saul begins to try to plot to kill David. And he does it in various ways. I've already mentioned that he multiple times tries to just pin him to the wall. And this is the, this is the erratic nature of Saul. Here's David playing and he's helping Saul get better. And then Saul just snaps and throws. And you can imagine the scene. The the javelin or the spear quivering in the wall as David hightails it out of there. Loot or liar on the ground. He, He does several different things. He finds out that his daughter Michael loves David and he says, I know what I'll do. Think about this if you're a father. You can marry my daughter, but the price of marrying my daughter is a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. 
He wants to he wants to get David killed in battle, which, by the way, put a bookmark on that because it sounds an awful lot like what David does to Uriah the Hittite a little bit later. Send him into risky fighting in order to try to rub him off. So he marries him precisely to waylay him. What a dad. What, what a father. Um, and of course, all of this backfires. David's like, great. He goes out promptly and brings back a gunny sack full of uh, foreskins for the, for the marriage price. And then he says, okay, I'm just going to kill him. Guys, go to his house and get him. And Michael says, oh, he's sick. And he says, I don't care if he's sick. You bring the bed that he's in and bring it to me. And of course, Michael loves him. So she puts the household gods in there and puts a, a goat skin there to make it look like David. Um, and it's a decoy. At least the household gods are good for something. And by the way, where did she get her household gods? They're idols. Maybe she got those from dad. So a sword has come to Saul's house. Just as Jesus came to bring a sword and divide, uh, divide father from children. We see that happening in Saul's household. So David runs away. He goes to Ramah. And he's like, what do I do? And, and by the way, I'm going to guess that Samuel had a lot of good things to say to David. We see David's conduct in the years to come when he's being persecuted by Saul. I imagine Samuel had a lot of wisdom for him during this time. But he goes and Saul finds out that he's with Samuel. And so he sends troops. Go get him. First troop shows up and the spirit of God falls on them and they prophesy. They just are overcome with the presence of God and the spirit of God and they can't do anything. They send another one. Same thing happens. They send a third. Same thing happens. And this is what it says when Saul himself says, fine, I'll do it. Verse 23 of chapter 19. And he went there to Nioth and Ramah, and the spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. This is a kind of reversal of what happened in the beginning. Remember in the beginning, he was anointed by the spirit and he became a new man. But because he's mistrusted God, disobeyed God, and now he opposes David, uh, the spirit humiliates him. The spirit strips him. Just as he was clothed with royal robes, the kingdom that he tried to, to tear has been torn from him. And he lay humiliated before David and Samuel. And by the way, this is the first opportunity that David had to kill him. All right, he, David will have other opportunities to kill him. But if he's laid out like he is, naked, uh, this is an opportunity for him to kill him. But of course, he doesn't do it. Finally, we get this elaborate last scene in chapter 20. In chapter 20, David comes to Nathan. He says, Nathan, look, your dad wants to kill me. That's it. And Nathan says, I don't think so. Look, let me talk to him. I've been able to talk to him before. And so they set up a scenario. He says, look, there's a, there's a dinner coming. It's a new moon festival. It's a couple nights. I'll go. You stay out. And if dad gets mad because you're not there, well, we'll know. And of course, we know how the story goes. He gets furious. And he says this, and this is really important. This is in chapter 20, 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of your mother's nakedness? 
For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he will surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Notice, but Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew, (laughs) if nothing else, now he knew that his father was determined to put David to death. Jonathan, he says, look, as long as he lives, your kingdom will be established. And Jonathan, I think, could have said, yeah, I know. And that's a good thing. I found the one who deserves the kingdom, Dad. I'm glad for him to have the kingdom. It, it belongs to him. God has chosen him. And he is persecuted just like David was. A servant is not above his master. If they persecute David, they will persecute Jonathan. Finally, we have this last scene where David is getting ready to depart. So we start with David's anointing and we end with this scene when David has to go on the run. He has to go on the lamb and that will precipitate a long number of years when he is on the run. And it says this in 41, when they finally, through their complex signals, uh, communicate to one another that, hey, my dad wants to kill you. It says this in verse 41. As soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap. And fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. They won't be together again. Until Jonathan dies. And notice that it says David wept the most. This is the beginning of David's long years of exile. And this is not so much, again, about friendship. Often this text is preached to, to, to illustrate friendship. And it's true it's about friendship, but it's about so much more. It's about the kingdom. It's about God's glory and what God's doing. And Jonathan recognizing. And I want you to consider what Jonathan has to face. So Jonathan, I was thinking about this today. Why didn't Jonathan go with David? He's the future king. Jonathan goes back to his dad's house, to crazy dad. And he fights with his dad. He fights for his dad, even though he's sworn this covenant to David. So Jonathan has to enter into this really difficult phase, and it's going to ultimately get him killed. Honoring his dad while still having this covenant with David in his heart. So let me draw out some applications from all this story, from the anointing to the exile of David. The first is the obvious, and it's been in, it's been in Samuel from the beginning. How will you respond to God's anointing? How will you respond to God picking who he picks? As I said, David being selected brings a sword to Saul's own house. Some love him. Michael loves him. Jonathan loves him. But Saul is insanely jealous. He's gripped with envy. He can't give up his position. And this is the question for everybody. How will you respond to the anointed, to the, uh, the son of Jesse? With love and covenant loyalty or with envy and opposition? The second is this. Jonathan, I think, is our model disciple. He's a picture of discipleship. He's a picture of what it means to give up everything and follow Jesus. Jonathan loved David. 
He relinquished his own rights and his own kingdom to give himself to David and to his kingdom. He enters into this covenant with David. And this is going to divide him from his father. This is going to break this relationship that he has with his father. And he has to return to his father's house and learn the difficulty of being loyal to David but honoring his father. I think Jonathan is a model of what we are called to be. We are called to strip off all that belongs to us and give it to Jesus. We are called to the costly discipleship, the sacrificial, humble discipleship of saying, oh, as long as you live, my kingdom won't go on. And that's a good thing. It's your kingdom come, not my kingdom come. Third, this theme of working with God. I want to stress this. Notice that. Saul was psychologically troubled, but he also had a spiritual trouble. And notice that David knew that God helped him, but he also had to work really hard. I think this is a major teaching of David's life, that David knew how to find God's help in what he did. Now, none of us, to my knowledge, are shepherds, and none of us, to my knowledge, have to deal with lions and bears. Let me know if that happens to you. But we all have to deal with something. And the example of David teaches us that we can learn to do what we have to do with God's help. And we can learn in smaller things, which to me, a lion and a bear are not smaller things, but okay. So that we can go on to greater things. Does that make sense? I think God calls all of us and graces all of us with the presence of his Holy Spirit to teach us how to do the hard thing of being a parent of being a spouse, of being an employee, of being a neighbor, whatever those hard things are, he calls us to find his help in them. And to be able to say, well, you know, this is a big task that maybe I should do, but God's helped me in other things. So I think he'll help me in this. Finally, where's Jesus? All right, remember, this is always what you want to ask. And the obvious answer throughout all of the book of Samuel is going to be very often, not all the time, but very often David. And I want to comment on that really briefly. David and other people in Scripture who point to Jesus, in a way they participate in the suffering of Jesus ahead of time. Think about Joseph. Joseph is given a dream. He's told that his family are all going to bow down to him. His brothers are jealous and they hate him. They sell him into slavery. He goes down, down, down. And God raises him up, up, up to second in Egypt. I think Joseph was participating ahead of time in the sufferings of Jesus. Jesus, the one who had to suffer before entering into his glory. So too in the life of David. So David... When he is trusting God, when he is walking with God, when he is understanding God's teachings, he is going to be a picture of us um, for Jesus. You could say that he is David. He is David, the Messiah. That's what anointing means. You might even say it might sound blasphemous to you, but it's not David Christ. Because he's David, the anointed, and he points to Jesus in this. He's a leader by God's criteria, not by human criteria. Not someone that most people would ever pick, but he is who God would pick. He brings healing, even to someone who wants to kill him. He serves in obscurity, nobody recognizing him. He crushes the serpent's head when he faces the serpent. He divides households by the loyalty that he calls 
forth from them. He elicits love and covenant devotion in other people. And by the way, why is this? Well, I think it's because God was with him. I think it's because the spirit was upon him. But I think it's also because as we learn in the Psalms, David spent time alone with God, worshiping God, adoring God. And he he came to reflect him. He came to have some of the magnetism that God himself has. David doesn't trust merely in human wisdom, but he trusts in God's aid and wisdom. He refuses to grasp for the kingdom. Think about this. How many people, when anointed by God and told by the prophet, you are the next king, would sit idly by and not grasp it and go for it? But David says, nope, I'm waiting. I'm waiting on God's timing. Well, that's just like what Jesus does. He's persecuted for righteousness sake. Just like Jesus. He suffers before entering into his glory, going into wandering and exile before entering in and taking up his kingdom. So Jesus is right there in the person of David as David participates ahead of time in the sufferings of Christ. Amen. Amen.